You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses add value and prepare for the future. Welcome, everyone, to our Trowers and Hamlins podcast, which follows on from our recent webinar with JLL on the current trends, challenges, and opportunities in the affordable housing secured funding sector. I'm delighted to be joined again by Richard Petty, Head of UK Living at JLL. Hi, Richard, and thank you for joining us again for this podcast today. Good afternoon, Katie. Um, Thanks very much for having me on, and it's great to be here with you. We thought it would be helpful following on from the webinar if we um, sort of had a bit of a reflection over some of the topics that we covered in the webinar and also to address some of the questions that we'd received that we didn't necessarily have time to cover in our webinar. And then to also talk a bit more in depth about some of the topics that perhaps we'd only lightly touched on. And I've also noted, and no doubt you will have done, Richard, that the regulator has issued its quarter four survey results. And it might be a good opportunity just to reflect on those a bit and also to consider some of their forecasts for the next 12 months. Because I know we discussed some of the regulator's forecasts a couple of weeks ago. So it's interesting just to see what's coming out of that. Thought it might be useful to pull out a few facts for the benefit of those listening from the quarter four survey, which covers the period from the 1st of January to the 31st of March 2021. Uh, So the regulators set out that debt facilities of 113 billion were in place at the end of March, of which 27.8 billion were undrawn. Uh, and that there's cash balances available uh, have increased by 0.4 billion during the quarter to reach 7.4 billion at the end of March. And this is probably something that you'll um, relate to that new finance of 3.1 billion was agreed just in the last quarter alone, including 1.2 billion of capital markets issues and 1.9 billion from the banks. And then the total agreed finance for the year to date was 15.1 billion, which is the highest recorded by the regulator. And that compared to 10.4 billion recorded in uh, 19 and 20 financial year. I guess that there are quite a lot of figures there. What are your thoughts having heard all of that is quite something really. I know that uh, we've seen a lot of activity ourselves, but it would be interesting to hear what your thoughts are on, on what's happened over the last year. Yeah, it, it, it's been a tremendously busy period for, for valuers and I'm sure for lawyers as well as for lenders. Uh, and I think the sort of figures that we're seeing there from the regulator are a huge vote of confidence from, from many different financial stakeholders in the resilience uh, of the social housing sector and the way in which providers have responded to the challenges of the pandemic in, the, in their operations and therefore in their cash flow. And from our perspective as valuers, that all flows through to incredibly robust asset values, uh, which, of course, is is great from the point of view of both traditional loan security and for investors in the bond market. And when you combine that with the um, the ESG agenda that is coming increasingly to the fore um, for lenders and investors, it makes the social housing sector a tremendously attractive uh, place for lending and investing. We'll probably touch later on some of the new sources of capital that we're starting to see being drawn into the sector. Uh, But it's absolutely great, I think, at the time when um, demand for affordable housing is rising and there are so many calls on cash and so many competing investment opportunities that the sector is so well supported financially. And 
I noticed that in the report they'd forecast over the next 12 months to March 2022 a return to levels of activity and performance or a return to them more similar to the pre-pandemic levels. When they're talking about that, um, I don't know if you've had a chance to review that, you know, what are they talking about in terms of getting back to that pre-pandemic level? Well, I, th I think to, to start with, it's it's about the the operating cash flows of of RP's businesses, and and if we think back to the spring or, or this time last year, there were lots of really serious and well-founded fears about um, how well rent collection would hold up on the extra operating costs that that many businesses were having to bear. For the most part, those fears have not been realised and, and the sector's cash flows have been very resilient. So I think firstly, the regulator is, is referring to that in the context of arrears and rent losses and um, the speed at which you can relet properties. So keeping that uh, the wheels turning on, on the operating cash flow. I, I think Secondly, it's also a return to more normal levels of development activity. And obviously, that's where some of the new funds that we were talking about a moment ago are being channeled. Uh, we're seeing a tremendously active market at the moment uh, around the acquisition of new development sites um, and lots of providers being very active participants in that market. Um, so that's where some of that activity is focused and, and, and again in terms of the restrictions that we've been under for so long uh, the market is moving much more freely now and, and then I think uh, you know thirdly it comes down to the confidence uh, to, to, to borrow against the asset values that we've got and knowing that those asset values are going to be uh, sustainable um, and underpinning the new borrowing that we were talking about a, a moment ago. Now, I think you know, alongside that, the regulator is also referring to the expenditure, if you like, the catch-up repairs and all, all the things that are not essential health and safety related expenditure that perhaps couldn't be done last year, uh, where now the brakes are coming off again and we'll see a more normal pattern of expenditure returning um, and, and we'll see that, that catch-up spend, I think, being a little bit of a drag on on, uh, on business plans for some months to come. Yeah, no, thank you, Richard. That's really interesting. And I know we touched upon like valuation forecasts in the webinar since that was over a month ago now. Has there been any change in your thought process of what predicted value is for residential and the residential market? Nothing has materially changed since since we spoke last month. It's it's still um, a fairly frenzied picture out there, and and um, you know people listening to this will be, I'm sure, very well aware from the news and from the media um, about the pressures in in the private housing market around the um, coming end of the of the stamp duty holiday as that as that tapers off, um, and uh, you know also some concerns around the. Um, the, the easing of, uh, of furlough support. So what we're seeing at the, at the moment is a very buoyant market, uh, a very liquid market in terms of how quickly things are, are selling when they come onto the market. Clearly that's good for housing associations in terms of shared ownership sales and also for private sales. And although we're moving towards the end of the stamp duty uh, period, um, you know, we're, we're um, we're not seeing at the moment any uh, any sign of a slackening in the in the rate of annual house price growth. So uh, it, it's a strong and healthy market at the moment, and we expect that growth to continue through the course of of, of 2021 and into 2022. 
and, and I think the interesting thing, thinking back to some of the, the um, figures we discussed in, in the in the seminar, is that it's it's very much not just a London and the southeast story. We're seeing some of the strongest growth um, in the major regional cities. Um, and uh, therefore, whichever part of the country you're operating in, or for those providers operating across the country, um, there are lots of areas of real strength in, in the regional markets uh, as well. So, um, again, thinking back to how we felt about the market last year collectively, those worst fears have not been realised. We haven't seen um, falls in rents or falls in values that, that could have manifested themselves, um, and, and therefore. Again, from a secured lending point of view, um, lenders can, I think, take a great deal of comfort um, in those market conditions and in what they mean for, for the resilience of, of values. Yeah, no, thank you, Richard. I think the regulator acknowledges that and that the sector pretty much overall is in a really strong financial position and has sufficient access to finance currently and, and going forward. And it's interesting to just note you know, what the regulator is thinking. I know some of the key messages um, from some of the talks that the regulator has, has given out is, again, stressing the importance of knowing your stock and your assets and, and maximising the value of them more generally. Uh, you know, in your view, and I know we touched on some of these points in the webinar, and we probably didn't have the time to discuss those in more depth, but what do you think RPs should be looking at doing in the next 12 months to ensure that they maximise the values? Of their assets and, and what have you seen in terms of the trends of what people have done up till now? Well quite a few things I think Katie in, in response to that that the starting point has to be really good accurate and, and up-to-date data on your existing housing stock so providers have to understand um, inside and out the detail of what they own and where the, uh, the peaks and, and troughs of expenditure uh, are going to be over over the coming years because that clearly uh, is, is a key driver of their own business plans but also uh, of the cash flows that underpin our valuations so getting your stock condition data up to date is is tremendously important and that's one of the, the, the um, things that the regulator is focusing on um, I suppose if you if you put that in the context of priorities um, Customer safety um, is, is absolutely paramount and, and has to come first. And there's certainly a renewed focus, I think, uh, at the moment from the regulator on the consumer standards. Hand in hand with that, I think the, the, the second area of emphasis is just on the quality of the day-to-day -day repair service and planning in works in a timely way and getting them done in a way that really drives um, well-being and satisfaction for, for residents. And then, and then the third area to start getting to grips with, I think, is around the, the, the huge challenges of net zero carbon um, and, and the sustainability agenda and, and starting to plan uh, for that. And in, in the short term, um, uh, I think the regulator's expectation is that expenditure will go up uh, rather than go down. But at the same time, there's a, there's a balanced expectation that it, it will take time for providers to work out what they need to spend money on around decarbonisation and how they're going to do that effectively. So 
expenditure should be going up, but the regulator, I don't think, is looking for a, a rush to significant change and certainly not in a way that might destabilize businesses or mean that investment is not is not well directed. And uh, I, I think those are the those are the critical areas for, for providers to be focusing on in the uh, in the next year or two. That'll be my, my reading of the regulator's agenda, certainly. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And then just from our perspective in terms of pure valuation sort of maximization, I know we've been doing a lot of work around uplifts for especially for lsvt associations but just generally on any rps who have got more restrictive transfer provisions lease provisions section 106 or planning provisions i guess from your perspective because you'll get to know a bit more about the exact figures as to what that uplift can you achieve you know what what's your experience of that and kind of what sort of value can be extracted from kind of making the most of your assets in that way yeah, and you're you're right. Of course, that that's a, a, a tremendously important area, and, and an area I suppose in which I hesitate to use the term free value, but you know it's it's an area where very significant value can can be unlocked, and that's from your existing assets without having to do anything different other than really understanding where the restrictions uh, lie or no longer lie. I, I suppose to, to, to generalise, we've probably seen um, uplifts of around 50% in value. And even if you take into account the different um, cover requirements for uh, MVT rather than EUVSH, um, you should still expect to see a significant benefit financially from unlocking that value. And there are clearly quite a few hurdles to, to, to be overcome, but in the great majority of cases that, that, that we look at, there is significant value to be unlocked there. And I, and I think it's important that that is looked at, thought through, quantified in, in good time um, ahead of charging exercises, because there's both, a, I suppose, a, a, a duty on RPs to make the most of their assets in terms of the loan security value, but there's also you know, a great opportunity there to um, release value from the existing assets <clears throat> really without taking any greater um, uh, risk and without incurring any really significant capital expenditure. Um, so it's an opportunity that should be grasped, I think. Um, have you seen any sort of geographic difference? Obviously, perhaps in the southeast, we're seeing quite a lot more significant uplifts in terms of value but is is it worth doing i know very specifically different geographic areas or different properties will have different um valuations that maybe it isn't always worth doing but what's your view on on where it really works and is most beneficial i suppose that, that as, as a generalization it, it is more worth doing in in higher value areas i certainly wouldn't limit that only to london and the southeast um, but that is one one obvious concentration there are a few pockets where it's it's not going to make a great deal of difference but those pockets are, are few and far between um, and i would say that in almost every area of the area of the country where we've looked at this there has been a benefit and a gain worth having and and well worth the, the candle in terms of the exercise. So 
wherever you are in the country, um, I would say this is something that you should be looking at and, and, and will benefit from in the vast majority of cases. Hopefully our listeners will uh, take note of that and uh, and take action where appropriate. And then just to change the topic slightly, although it will be something that you've covered already in terms of a cost and expenditure coming up, but I know we talk quite a lot in depth about building safety and how funders are viewing that, and, and we continue to see more conditions precedent or inquiries around building safety coming through from the funders. Um, but has there been anything from your side uh, worth updating since our, our webinar around building safety more generally? Yes, I, I think there. I think there has. So, it, just to just to recap very briefly, when we had the webinar last month, we were talking about the new RICS guidance, uh, which came uh, into effect on the fifth of April, and I, I think we're we're starting to see recognition of that and, and and having it put into practice in the market is starting to, to feed through and bring some benefits particularly around um, freeing up uh, sales in in the in the retail mortgage market and and that's important from both the point of view of shared ownership leaseholders uh, who've been who've been stuck and uh, indeed private sales by by housing associations as well as new shared ownership sales so I think that new guidance is gaining traction. I think that there is slowly a return to more normal, a more normal risk-based approach on the part of professional indemnity insurers, on the part of consultants working in this space. So we've had a, a situation really where the market has been struggling to adapt to um, a tremendously risk-averse approach um, from, from insurers, from mortgage valuers, um, and, and from uh, from lenders, that is starting to ease, and that is extremely helpful. Uh, it will take a little bit of time, but we are making progress. One thing we've been working on in the background with our our colleagues from Savills uh, is a new joint guidance note on affordable housing valuation around um, high-rise and, and multi-story, multi-occupancy residential buildings. So. By the time this uh, this podcast is broadcast, that that will be published. Um, we'll be sending it out to to clients from both firms, and I hope that will just help understanding of the new guidance. Um, but also, very importantly, with that, there will be a, a standardised list of questions that both we and Savills will be putting to RP borrowers as part of the due diligence um, that we do on behalf of lenders. So. The, the questions that we are getting from lenders as part of our instructions, those questions are becoming harder to answer. They're becoming more exacting, more demanding, uh, and looking for, for greater investigation on our part. So we're trying to um, provide borrowers with um, a more consistent and predictable approach to the questions that we'll be asking them on behalf of the funders as part of any charging exercise involving buildings not just high rise but also medium rise it comes right down to buildings of any height where there are um, cladding or balcony or external wall system issues um, so a lot of due diligence that we need to do around that and, and to help us understand the fire safety works that providers have been undertaking over the last four years since Grenfell a huge amount of work has been done there's a huge amount more still to do and hopefully by having a standard list of questions it will make our 
process, our charging process, and, and indeed from the lawyer's perspective as well, um, easier and, and quicker. Yeah, and I think consistency and just knowing what to expect um, is really key, especially when people are looking to charge properties or when revaluations are coming up and wherever we can create an, a, a consistent approach in the sector. Um, it just helps all RPs know where they stand and just streamline and, and make the whole charging and valuation process a lot more efficient. Yeah, there's, there's nothing at all unreasonable in the questions that funders are asking of, of borrowers no. or, or of valuers. We've just got to work together to find the, the best way of answering those questions. The fundamental limitation is is, is partly the historic data on what has been done and, and technical detail of that, but also a recognition that as, as value is doing a loan security valuation, we can't go and, and, and make intrusive investigations. So it's, a, it's a, a, if you like, a pragmatic balance between what, what we can do and what we can reasonably be asked to do by the funders. Yeah, and I think, yeah, as you say, there's quite a lot of information to find. So just having that advanced warning well ahead of needing to actually use it, um, it all helps um, to make our lives easier. <laughs> and then on modular methods of construction, I know there's obviously um, some work being done by the MMC working group, um, and we touched upon that also in our webinar. Are you aware since of, of any of uh, the guidance being tested at all? Have you um, been involved in any uh, valuation of MMC or know of any valuations or charging of that I know a lot of funders and borrowers are really keen and ask a lot of questions about that but um, it'll be interesting to see if anything has moved on since since we last spoke in, in the last couple of months nothing, nothing significant um, has has come through in in that sense we're still very much uh, you know pushing that agenda and as, as part of the um, the new AHP you know, the, the government's uh, emphasis and, and desire to see MMC coming through as part of the, the, the supply chain as it were in the sector um, is, is, is very strong we're not quite yet seeing that uh, desire on the part of government joining up sufficiently with funders acceptance of, of MMC in terms of, of bulk loan security, if I can put it in those terms, as opposed to the retail mortgage market. But we've got, I think, a very good um, dialogue going now with um, various stakeholders, including the funders. There's a, a slowly growing number of funders uh, declaring their hands in terms of a, a published policy, which is very helpful. I think much greater first-hand understanding of the technologies that are being used and how homes are being built. And gradually the numbers are are, are creeping up so um, again we, we we will get there I think we need to accelerate a bit in terms of the of the acceptance of, of MMC uh, by funders in in the wholesale lending market but you know, again our, our, our position fundamentally is that this kit is capable of being valued on a market value subject to tenancies basis it should, it should not be restricted to EUVSH and there is quite a, uh, an exacting list of information that, that we as valuers need um, that we've, we've drawn up again in conjunction with our colleagues at Savills. Um, it's an initiative that we've been pushing together for some time. And if borrowers can give us all that information, none of it's an unreasonable ask. If borrowers can give us that information, it will really help getting this, this product into, into charge. 
it would be good to get some more MMC stock charged um, in the coming months. There are a few, but they've tended to, very understandably so far, form part of larger portfolios. Um, yeah. They've been very clearly flagged in, in, in those portfolios and reports. But practice has varied so much from, from lender to lender, and, and we'd like to see it become much more prominent uh, as, as the supply grows. What the, the last thing any of us want, I'm sure, is for the sector to be commissioning and, and delivering new homes that are um, very well-built MMC products can't then be charged as, as security yeah yeah and I think that's uh, we're getting queries from development colleagues you know to their finance teams to say well actually we can build this and it's all great stuff but actually can we fund it and I think yeah that's a bit of a, a block at the minute for, for a lot more of it coming through um, and then since we've uh, spoken last just touching on the affordable homes program and, and the grant funding the new shared ownership lease um, has come out and I know that we'll probably be doing some more in-depth um, review of that and talking but I know one of the questions that did come out of the seminar um, that we did was whether if there was a, a lease that was shorter than 990 years which is the the lease term that they're saying the shared ownership leases have to be would that be a problem or how that would be treated and looking through the guidance I think basically condition for getting the funding unless there is already a planning exemption for any reason is that pretty much 990 years has to be the term that those leases are, are granted on so if you are an RP looking to buy or negotiate lease long leases yourselves that you need to make sure that you've got an appropriate length of lease yourself to be able to grant those um, and I guess it's a bit of a, a note of caution or a point for fund um, RPs to look at and boards to consider that you need to think carefully probably about which schemes you're going to be putting forward for that that funding um, and perhaps pepper potted units where they're all on different terms might not be the appropriate ones to put forward for for funding but I don't know if you've got any view in terms of that I know we did touch upon on the length term in our webinar last, but whether there were any evaluation thoughts coming out of that or your experience on what RPs are saying to you around the, the shared ownership product at all. Yes, yeah, so on, on the uh, on the lease length point, I mean that makes that makes good sense and, and clearly granting a, a a longer lease than the interest you hold yourself is uh, uh, is not a tenable way forward. Um, we, we've occasionally seen it happen by mistake, but it's um, it, it never ends well, and, and it gives rise to all sorts of complications. But I, I do think fundamentally, it's a good principle of estate management in, in in all sectors to have as far as possible leases that are coterminous uh, in, in a building. So having some shared ownership leases. At, at 990 and another private sale leases at 125 I think is going to create problems in the very long term it might be I suppose in in buildings where providers have a uh, a freehold or a sufficiently long leasehold interest that um, private sale leases could could go to 990 as well as the shared ownership so at least you've got them um, on a on a level footing with each other I think in I think in practice, probably touched on in in the webinar. If, if you look at the average level of sale of, of, of first first tranches, um, in, in our experience as agents at the moment, it's around about thirty seven percent. So you, know, you see lots of schemes at thirty five to forty. 
I don't think we'll see very many in practice uh, as low as 10%. Um, but, but, but where you do, I, I do think it gives rise to some reasonable concerns on, on funders' part about the sustainability of that as a, uh, as a position for the shared owners. Uh, and I think with taking all the features of the new shared ownership lease in, in the round, so the, the, the um, contribution to, to repair and maintenance costs from landlords, for example, um, and how the staircasing will, will play out and, and, and the implicit risk um, for, for providers, um, it, it is likely to be detrimental to, to capital values and, and that it feeds through a bit, I think, to, to, to the loan security side. It, it certainly makes assessing development viability much more difficult. So we'll, we'll see how it works out in practice, but we're not sensing very much enthusiasm from providers um, or from funders or, or indeed from valuers for the new shared ownership model. But we'll have to see, uh, I suppose again, again collectively, how the, how the sector um, uh, takes to the, the lease now it's been published. Yeah, no, and watch that space on on this. I'm sure we'll be uh, publishing some more information around that um, over the coming months. Um, and then going back to some questions that we didn't get a chance to answer. Another question came through with, was how funders can help. It was a general question, but I think it was probably you know how they can help RPs post pandemic. And I guess yeah, just a question. To you, Richard, you know, has has their approach changed over the last year? Do you think, and and what message would you give to funders going forward? Well, I, I guess the first thing to acknowledge is that the funders have been um, fantastic, actually, over the last fifteen months of, of, of very challenging circumstances. And I think before the pandemic started, had, had we asked funders in principle whether they would accept some of the things that they have accepted over the last few months, they probably wouldn't have said yes with alacrity, but um, to their enormous credit collectively, they, they have been you know, nothing but supportive of um, finding pragmatic ways to work around. Um, so we're starting to get some questions coming through now about when we will get back to normal in terms of, uh, of doing more internal inspections. There are a, a, a few of those going on, but not generally for, for routine loan security purposes. So I think that getting back to a, a normal level of due diligence is one of the first um, changes that funders will, will look for from, from valuers and from surveyors. Not so much as soon as we're able and willing, but I think as, um, it's more a case of as soon as the residents are, are, are willing and able to let us into their homes on, on the regular basis that we were going in before. And that, that will be important. And I think that will be important for confidence. And uh, I think you know, there'll, there'll probably be some points that you, you might touch on from a, a legal perspective around um, covenants uh, and around um, some of the flexibility that's been shown there as well. But I, I, I think the funders have been tremendously supportive, tremendously agile in the way they've adapted to, to, the, to the pressures uh, of the pandemic. Uh, and they're probably as keen as we all are to, to see um, a return to more normal practices in, in the valuation market. And there'll be, I guess, a, an adjustment and a catch up in terms of the cycle of um, pool versus desktops uh, and, and so on over the, over the coming months. But I have nothing but, but praise and gratitude, really, for the way in which the funders have, have responded uh, to, to the challenges we've had.
Thanks, Richard. Yes, I would agree with all of the points you've made on how much funders have cooperated and worked together with borrowers to get a record level of funding over the line during this particularly challenging year. Um, we've also spoken, Richard, I know, and wanted to take this opportunity to thank all the borrowers also for the immense amount of work, support and collaboration that we have both experienced over the last 15 months and how much the whole of the affordable housing finance sector has pulled together during this difficult time. That is probably all we've got time for in this podcast today, although this is no doubt, there is no doubt much more that we could cover and we could, I'm sure, all listen to Richard and his invaluable insights for many hours. Um, but I'm going to draw this podcast to a close and take this opportunity to thank Richard very much for his time and thoughts and insights today. Should you wish to speak to either of us about any of the issues or themes raised in the podcast, then do not hesitate to email either of us on the email link set out in the podcast details in the invite. Thank you again, Richard, and goodbye, everyone. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.